Welcome to the sermon podcast of Gamble Street Baptist Church, Fort Worth, Texas. Gamble Street Baptist Church has been sharing the gospel for over 100 years. This podcast includes sermons from our traditional Sunday morning service and our contemporary services on Sunday evenings. We hope God speaks to you through this sermon. Uh, it is good. I'm excited to start uh, this series and or continue this series over the next year and, and just see the theme of redemption through Scripture and how it is just coded through the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament. Uh, we see the theme of redemption in the first book of the Bible, and that's what we're going to see today. Something that I think is really interesting and really important that I believe we'll see throughout the series. I know it's not going to be the main focus, but it is something that, that we need to realize it is the beauty and the power that we can see in a narrative, in the story of a narrative. There, there, is, there is a way in which a narrative communicates that many other types of, of uh, different methods can't. Because there, there's a cadence, there's a pattern, there, there's a way that it can be communicated to its readers. And I believe we'll see that all throughout the series. And I know uh, I saw it as I was studying this text in Genesis 3. And if, if you know, we're all familiar with narratives, how they're structured, how they work. Narratives have a protagonist and they also have an antagonist. And just because there is an antagonist, that doesn't mean they're a bad person, a bad guy. It just means they're against the main character. So if the main character is a, good, uh, is a bad person, then the antagonist can be a good guy. We, we get that. But in this case, in our, in our text today, in this meta-narrative, we're introduced to the antagonist, and the antagonist is not good. But we know in the scope of a story, in, in, in a narrative, that the antagonist can really help communicate the story, and I believe that's what um, he does in this text and all throughout Scripture. What an antagonist can do is help highlight the desire and the objective of the main character, of the protagonist, whatever that may be. And another thing that the antagonist can do is, is in an attempt to foil the protagonist's uh, desire, you see what uh, the protagonist wants, the protagonist, their values what they believe is right, and what they believe is successful to the story. And so I think we really see that in our text tonight uh, as we are introduced to this antagonist. And, and if, as we go, or as we've gone uh, a couple weeks ago through the first two chapters of Genesis that Joel explained, we, we see that God, the protagonist, he, he creates and establishes the world that we see, and then all of a sudden we come to Genesis 3 and we kind of see a shift in, in the story, don't we? And that's what we're going to see tonight. So we're going to kind of walk through this as, as best we can. But before we get into chapter 3, let's, let's kind of get a recap. In Genesis 2, God creates Adam. He creates mankind. He creates Adam and he creates Eve. And when he creates Adam, when he creates man... He, he does two things. He instructs him, so he instructs him what to do, and, and we saw this a couple weeks ago in verse 15 
It says, then the Lord God told, or took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, from any tree of the garden you may freely eat. So he instructs Adam, he says, you're to cultivate the land, you're to, to uh, yield a crop and, and all of this and work the garden. That, that's, that's one of your purposes, that's one of your jobs. So he instructs him what to do with that. But he also gives him a warning. He gives him a, a command through a warning. And he says in verse 17, But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God issues this command, issues this warning, and this instruction to Adam. And so Adam is very, is very uh, aware of the consequences of this. And it's something that's really interesting that you kind of lose it when, when it's translated um, in this instruction that God gives to Adam that we find in uh, verse 17 is when he says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for when you eat it, you will surely die. And as I was studying this, I was looking at the text. What's interesting in the Hebrew language is the word die is they're, they're written consecutively. Die is written back to back. He says it twice, two consecutive times. And I was like, I was like that's interesting. Why, why does he say it twice? And that really probably, of all the things that I was studying for this text, that's, that might be what jumped out at me most. I'm thinking, why does God say die twice? It's written twice. And so um, I, I continued reading about it and... Uh, I talked to my professor, and I was like, is this my Hebrew professor? And I asked him, I said, what's, what's the purpose of this? Why Is it because he's just, is he basically just emphasizing the magnitude of when, if you eat this fruit, you are going to die? And, and we, we had a really good conversation on it. And basically what, he, what God was telling him, because when you read this text just in passing, it, it could almost, if you're not careful, sound like God was saying, well, you can have any of the fruits of, of any of these trees, but don't have this one because you're going to die. Now let's move on. If you're just kind of passively reading it, that might be what it comes off as. But what God is really telling Adam, he says, you can have any fruit from any tree, but this one. And it's almost as if God is saying, Adam, look at me right now. I want you to pay attention to what I'm saying, because if you eat of this fruit from this tree, in dying, you are surely going to die. Adam, do you understand this? Look at me. Do you comprehend? So it's not as if God was saying, okay, there's going to be some consequences if you eat this fruit. He made it clear to Adam that the moment you eat of this fruit, you will die. In dying, you will die spiritually, and, and even physically. So there is this grave warning that God, that Yahweh gives to Adam about this fruit. Now, some people say, you know, you, you could be, uh, a, lot of, a lot of people that, that criticize scripture, criticize Christianity, you, know, you've pro you might have heard this, this argument, this objection. Well, is God just setting them up for failure here? Because they put, God put Adam in paradise, and he says, you can have whatever you want, but don't have this. Don't have this fruit. Why did he even have to place this, this fruit here? Now, that, that could be a whole message in and of itself, but I think it's a good message for us to realize that, for one, God, if, if he would have done that, 
If he wouldn't have given man a choice, I believe that limits his power. I think that does. It limits his omnipotence. It limits his power because it's almost as if he had to say, well, I'm not powerful enough to overcome their sin if they choose to do this. Another thing and another reason answer to this objection is I believe that love is not forced. You cannot force love. And so if, if this, this option to choose to reject God was not there and he said, well, you're going to love me regardless because you don't have a choice, that's not love, right? I cannot, you cannot, and I cannot make anybody love you or love me. I, I could not make my wife, I cannot make my wife love me. You know, whenever I proposed to her, thank God she said yes. That would have been an awkward ride back to her mom's house. Thank God she said yes, but I cannot make her love me. It's a choice, and it's the same thing that God shows Adam here. It's a choice, and we see his power in that choice, that he can overcome that, that he can overcome man's faults and frailties. So it wasn't a trap. God wasn't setting them up for failure. And that's not what he was doing at all. But we do see that he issues this warning. And then all of a sudden we go into chapter 3. And we're introduced to the antagonist of this narrative. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. He's more crafty. He's more cunning. He's more sly. So you're already kind of getting this feeling of, oh no, what is going to happen now? Something is not good. And we see that he's crafty. We see that he's sly. We see that he's cunning because what does he do? He goes straight to the woman. And, and I, I mean this with all sincere. I'm, I'm not bashing women here. I'm, if you look at the text, what happened in chapter 2 when he instructed Adam? He said, you can eat whatever you want except for this. Where was Eve? Where was the woman? Was she right beside him when it happened? No, because look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. She hadn't even been created yet. The woman was not even yet created when God warned Adam. So when God warned Adam, he said, do not partake of this fruit. Then he says, it's not good for the man to be alone. He creates the woman. And then we enter chapter 3. And the serpent goes to who? The woman. The one who was not there when God warned him, when God warned man. And so we see that he's crafty because he goes straight to her. And then what does he do? He, he, he asks a question. He, he's testing the waters because it's important for us to know. I think sometimes we can get um, uh, a little carried away at the power of the enemy. And we, we really covered this in our last series uh, when we were talking about the armor of God and, and Satan and all of this. We have to remind ourselves that he's not all-knowing. He's not all-powerful. And so he does not know everything. So I believe this was a test, and he was just saying, okay, I want to see how far I can get with this. So he goes up to the woman, and he asks her, he says, indeed, has God really said that you shall not eat of any tree of this garden? Did God really say? Now, that's the start of it all, isn't it? Did God really say this? Did God really say that you couldn't have any fruit from this garden? And Eve, she, if you think about it, she passed the first part of the test. Because how does she respond? She says, the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. She says, no, that's not what God said. God didn't say that we couldn't partake of any of the fruit. From the fruit of the trees, we can have it. We can eat it. But then 
she goes and then she says, uh, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. So we come to another interesting part in this text whenever the woman says, well, yeah, God said we could eat from the garden. He didn't say we couldn't. And then she even really kind of passed the first part. She said, well, we can't eat from that tree. But then she says, we can't touch it or else we're going to die. Now, in the previous chapter, God never said anything about not touching it. I mean, you could go into specifics there. I'm not necessarily going to go into that. But I remember this text as a kid thinking, that, that's not a bad idea for Eve to just go ahead and take one step further and say we can't touch it because, I mean, it's, it's de- if you can't eat it, it's definitely, it's technically not a sin to touch it, but we're not going to be hurt if we don't touch it either. And so what's wrong with, with, Eve, with Eve saying this? You know, some theologians think, well, she misunderstood since she wasn't there when, when God told Adam. Um, she misunderstood maybe when Adam communicated it to her, and maybe Adam just said, hey, just for the sake of let's not do this, just don't touch it because we're going to die. I don't know. We, we're not given the specifics of this. Others believe that, that she did understand, she did fully understand, but she's already thinking in her mind that God is being too restrictive with this rule. And so she's almost saying, well, you know, we can't eat of it, we can't even touch it. I, I, almost as if I can't, I can't believe this. This, is, this seems too restrictive because, or else we'll die. So uh, it kind of depends on the interpretation there. But I think that's kind of beside the point when you look at the grand scheme of this. Now, I'm confident enough in my masculinity to admit this, but in the movie, I've seen it several times, Miss Congeniality. I don't know if any of y'all have seen that movie. I've seen it several times, and I'm not ashamed to say that. But in that movie, you have Sandra Bullock, who plays an FBI agent, right? And, and she gets word, she gets wind of there is a bomb threat for the Miss America pageant. And so what do they do? They dress her up, and she uh, is disguised as a contestant for Miss America. But there's a character in that movie. Uh, she's Miss Rhode Island. And she's kind of portrayed as this innocent, naive, uh, well-meaning, pure lady. You know, she's kind of ditzy, but she's well-meaning, and she's kind of naive. And, and you know how in, in, the, in just regular pageants, they'll, they'll line the ladies up. They ask them questions, you know, what do you want? World peace, world peace, world peace, you know, always world peace. But they, they come up to her, Miss Rhode Island, and William Shatner asks her, he says, what is the perfect date? What is your perfect date? Now, obviously, our immediate thought is, well, you know, a guy and a girl going out for dinner and maybe taking a walk down the park and, and having a great evening. That's what everyone's thinking. Well, William Shatner asks Miss Rhode Island, innocent Miss Rhode Island, what is the perfect date? And she replies, ooh, that's a tough one. I would have to say April 25th. Because it's not too hot, it's not too cold, all you need is a light jacket. That was her answer. And they're all just kind of looking at her like, what in the world are you doing? What is going on? Why? (laughs) I cannot believe that you would respond in that way, kind of like just confused. Um, 
she responded, she was wrong in her answer, right? I mean, that, that's not what the question was. She was sincere in her answer, but she was wrong. But it was from a misunderstanding. She misunderstood the question. So there is some innocence there. Regardless of whether or not Eve understood, misunderstood, whatever, that's not really the point. The point is Adam, the man, understood because he was standing right beside her, as we'll find out when we go further in the text. He was right there the whole time. So whether or not Eve understood the question, understood uh, the command that God gave to her, Adam knew. Because remember in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 17, God emphatically stated, you cannot eat of this or else you are going to die. In dying, you will die. So Adam had no misinterpretation, misunderstanding of it. There was no excuse. But Eve says we can't eat of it and we can't touch it or else we're going to die. And so the serpent, he sees this and he does not let off. He goes farther. He goes further. He says, not only does he say that God is wrong, he says that God is lying. He says, the serpent, the serpent says, you won't, you're not going to die. For God does know that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Now, there's some truth in that. The truth is, if, if they partake of this fruit, their eyes are going to be open. They will know good from evil, but it's going to be through experience. Eve's going to know evil through experience. Adam's going to know evil through experience. And, and the lie, one of the lies is that you will be like God. And he's putting this idea in their mind that you're going to be put on his level and that God is threatened by you. God does not want you to be put on his level. And he knows that if you eat this, you will be. You see, they forgot that they were created in the image of God. They were already like God in the sense that they were created in his image, but the serpent, the enemy, he was trying to get them to see or trying to show them, deceive them that, yeah, you're created in the image of God, but that's not enough. That's not enough. Remember in Genesis 1.26, God said, let us make man in our image. And so the image of God, he created him. Male and female created he, them. But the serpent says, well, that's not enough. You can be actually equal with God. And so as a result, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. So as we read about in James, so often the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, that this fruit looked good and the pride of life, that we could be like God, we could be on his level, we could, we could be equal with him. What was her response? What was her reaction? She took from its fruit and ate. And then we see, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. We see Adam was right there the whole time. He was not working out in the field. He was not uh, off somewhere. He was, and he, he wasn't even standing right there and saying, whoa, 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 this needs to be cut off. We, we need to cut this out. He was standing right there silent the whole time. So like I said earlier, regardless of the excuse Eve might have had, the woman might have had, even though she's not named yet, Adam was right there. He knew the commands of God, and he did nothing about it. In fact, he partook of eating of this fruit. So Eve, you know, she, she submits, succumbs to a superhuman, and Adam just submits to a human being. 
So in a lot of ways, Adam's, Adam is the weaker. Adam is, Adam is the one who you're like, I cannot believe this. Now, we're, it's easy to throw stones. If we're in the situation, probably done the same thing. But regardless, we see that the fall happens here. And the result is, their reaction is their eyes are open. They do see, and they realize something is not right. We are not right with God. And as a result of the fall, they lost what? They lost God. They lost that, that intimate relationship, that pure, innocent relationship with God. They lost each other, right? They lost their innocence. And, and you can't convince me otherwise that the rest of the days of their life, they had guilt over this, especially after one of their son kills another son of theirs. So you, you can't tell me that they didn't have some sort of blaming match going on or at least some sort of guilt, and they had to deal with this the rest of their lives. But we see a beautiful picture in response to this. As a result of this, they hide, yes, but what does God do? He seeks them. God seeks them. He, seeks them. he, he sought them out. It says in verse 8, They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And we see God's first question to man. What does he say? He says, where are you? Where are you? Of course, we know God knows all things. He's omniscient. That's, that's not the issue. It's not because he, he doesn't know where they are. He wants to get them to say where they are. He wants them to, he wants to lovingly expose themselves of their sin and to show them of their sin. And so he, he asked them one, you know, he asked Adam, he said, where are you? And Adam said, I heard you, or I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid myself. And so he says, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so he's, slowly exposing his sin by asking him questions. It reminds me of that passage of what the choir sang today in the 139th Psalm, search my heart and know me and show me if there's any wicked way in me. Oftentimes, that's how God reveals uh, our sin to us, by just the reading of his word and maybe just questions come into our mind and, and not just outwardly, ex immediately expressing that we have sinned, but just through over time, oh man, searching our heart, and I didn't even realize I had this sin within me. And this is what God is lovingly doing. He's searching their heart to expose them and show them that they have sinned, even though they really know it. And even in God's way of lovingly doing this, they're already sinning in response. They're in denial of this sin. They're, they're in the blaming game, if you will. But notice in all this, too, the order in which he goes about this. Yes, the woman ate of the fruit first, uh, the serpent was talking to her. Didn't seem like he was even talking to Adam, just talking to her. She partakes of the fruit, gives it to Adam, and then God searches them out. But who does he go to? He goes to Adam. He goes to the man. And he says, you know, where are you? And, and then just previously, in the previous chapter, whenever he is rejoicing over this woman, when he's rejoicing over the one that, that came out of his rib and said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And God said, you know, why'd you do this? And all, now he's saying, it's because of the woman you gave me. It doesn't take him long 
to sin and sin and sin some more and throw his wife under the bus. We see the power of sin here. It's the blaming game. And so then what does he do? He goes to the woman. He's basically, is this true? She said, well, it's the serpent who deceived me. We're already seeing no responsibility taken over this sin. But as he goes to the man first, then he goes to the woman, look at the curses that he issues. As a result, God is a holy God. God is a God of justice. He can't let a crime go unpunished. He can't let sin go unpunished. So as a result, there has to be some sort of punishment, some sort of of curse, if you will. But he doesn't start with the man, and he doesn't start with the woman. Who does he start with? The serpent. So now the roles are reversed. And that's a beautiful thing about, another beautiful thing about narrative, especially uh, Jewish narrative, Old Testament narratives. There's, there's a lot of patterns and there's a lot of ebb and flow and, and you have to really kind of look close. And when you do and you see things, it's like, this is really beautifully written, how it's structured and, and how, it, how it works. And so he goes into the curse and I think one, one beautiful thing, one amazing thing about this is that yes, man sinned. The responsibility is on them. Even though the serpent tempted them to do it, they didn't have to do it. But he loves his creation so much that the curse starts with the one who tempted them. I believe this shows God's love for humanity so much that he says, I am angry over the fact that you would even do this to my prized creation. So he goes to the serpent and he curses him. And then he goes to the woman and he says, as a result... um, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth and pain. You will bring forth children, and yet your desire will be for your husband. So this beautiful thing in procreation is cursed through the pain that you experience, and you will desire or the longing or the craving will be to be over your husband, but he will rule over you. And then he goes to the man, and he says, because you listened to your wife, and that's not a jab. Once again, that's not a jab at women. The fact that he says, because you listened to your wife, He's saying this because, you know, just the last chapter, your wife wasn't even created yet. It's on you. You knew my command. And because you listened to her when she, uh, it's not bad that you ever listened to her to get her input. But in this situation, it is because the responsibility was on you because I told you. So because you listened to your wife, there's going to be great toil in your work. Work, as we know, is not a result of the fall. Work is a good thing. Work is the thing that was, hap- that was created before the fall. Work is a beautiful thing. There's a lot that could be said about the theology of work. There's a lot of things written about the theology of work, and I encourage you to read that. But the toil in it and, and the tension between uh, the creation and, and the ground and the one working, that was a result of the fall. And so this happens so there's so many curses happening, but we go to, we move on, and we see that, or if we go back, we see something in this curse that is beautiful. Look with me in verse 15. He's talking, God is talking to the serpent here, and he says, I will put enmity or I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, 
I don't believe Adam and Eve or the serpent even really understood the bigger picture that was being uh, said here. I, I, I don't think so. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But as a result of having the completed word of God, and as we go through the scripture throughout this year, I think we'll be very enlightened with this passage here of verse 15, Genesis 3, 15. I'll put enmity, I'll put hostility. So there's a curse on this creation. We see that in Romans 8. The creation groans. As a result of the fall, the creation groans and it yearns for the return of Christ to be restored. But he said, I'll put hostility between your seed, so Satan and all of his forces who cannot be redeemed. There's no way they can be redeemed. There will be hostility between your seed and Eve's seed, the, the woman's seed of whose seed Christ, the incarnate Son of God, would come into this world, live the perfect sinless life, and die a sinner's death on your behalf and my behalf so that we might have life, and he will crush you. He will crush the serpent. So what is this? It's the first gospel message. The moment sin entered into the world, God presents the gospel. He shows them of their sin first. Notice that. He presents to them, you have sinned, you're guilty, and there are curses. But then he presents the gospel. This beautiful message of the gospel. So what does this even mean? I mean, this is the first book of the Bible. Sin enters into the world. We obviously know the effects of sin. We see it every day. We see it in our lives. We see it in this nation, in this world. But what does it mean today? Well, I think one thing is we see that we have a great antagonist in this narrative who is alive. This is true. This is a real event that has happened. And this antagonist is great, and he hates you. He hates me. He hates God. And from this, it seems that we won't see the tree of life anymore because they get kicked out of the garden, and the angels guard it, and they're kicked out of this garden because they chose not to have life. They chose not life, but to They chose to disobey God. But we have a better protagonist, a more powerful character who is real, who is God in this story. And as a result, this tree of life does come back. And it comes back back thousands of years later on this hill called Calvary where the Son of Man will be hanging on this cross for you and for me this tree of life that the Old Testament saints look forward to, and this tree of life that we as believers, as saints today, abide and rest in, knowing that, yes, this world has been cursed because of the fall, but we already have a God who pursues us and who loves us and has already provided a way of redemption. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Gamble Street Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. If you have questions, we would love to speak with you. Please call 817-926-1785 to speak with a minister. If you live in or will be traveling to the Fort Worth area, we would love to have you visit. Gamble Street Baptist Church has six church goals to reach the lost for Christ, to learn more about Christ, to touch the city through Christ, train leaders to serve Christ, to embrace the world with Christ, and to build strong families in Christ. Please join us for our next episode.